Hello, and welcome to the second episode of SFD's series on Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh. I've been told by people who both like me and like my voice that I ought to shorten up my intros, and honestly, that's fine with me. If you're into hearing about SFD's housekeeping, that'll follow the end of the show part of the episode. If you're going to hear any housekeeping, just let it be that you share this show. Share it, share it, share it. Other than that, I'm Jonathan Coombs. We're talking about Vietnam, and this is Safe for Democracy. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas? But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression. Across the world, we're hunting down the killers and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi people. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. I was just now having a bit of a debate with myself. I was looking at my outline and the very brief description I'd put down on the French conquest, and I was beginning to think that it needed to be longer. I spent an hour reading and digging up articles and getting ready to talk about the different armies involved in the French-Chinese war that played into it, and then I got a cup of coffee. And as I was having that coffee, I changed my mind. I'm going to stick with the brief version, because the French conquest of Indochina was like any other colonial war. Small groups of heavily armed Europeans using a mix of force and pseudo-legal pretexts to overwhelm an enemy that, in the end, just didn't have the guns or the ships to stand up to them. It's not an uninteresting story, but it's not our story, and I'm already taking too long to get to the parts of it that are relevant to SFD. So here is the short version. When we left off, it was 1802, and Nguyen An had just changed his name to Gia Long and established the last Vietnamese dynasty. His rule, to all appearances, was long and good. He re-established the Confucian principles and civil service that the Taesun Rebellion had wiped out, and he recreated the uncorrupted, or at least normally corrupt, administration of mandarins that had existed before the Trinh and Nguyen lords divided the country 130 years beforehand. Jialong instituted land reforms to return small parcels to the villages and the peasants from the hands of large landholders, and basically set the country aright again. But, like I mentioned at the end of the last episode, the French hadn't forgotten about the plans of the priest Pignot de Bahane, and they hadn't lost their hunger for more Asian colonial possessions. They were, like all the European powers, on the lookout for a confluence of opportunity and excuse, and it was the Catholic population in the country that gave it to them. Frederick Logeval, a professor at Cornell, my sister's alma mater, wrote one of the only English-language books on the French in Indochina that didn't come from one of the two French authors that we've already talked about, Bernard Fall 
and Jean Le Couture. Lugaval wrote that French interest in Southeast Asia and specifically Indochina, quote, would also prevent rival world powers, notably Great Britain, from staking a claim on the territory. The political interest in this expedition, noted the Commission for Indochina in 1857, arises from the force of circumstances propelling the Western nations toward the Far East. Are we to be the only ones who possess nothing in the area, while the English, the Dutch, the Spanish, and even the Russians establish themselves there? Continuing with the Lobo quote now. With the British holding a dominant position in eastern China along the coast, French planners turned their focus southward, to the Vietnamese shore of the South China Sea. In the words of the Marseille Chamber of Commerce in 1865, much later, the goal was to make Saigon a French Singapore, unquote. So, in 1857, the Vietnamese emperor Tu Duc put two Catholic missionaries to death for opposition to the crown. It wasn't the first time that this or something like it had happened in Vietnam, but at that point in history, Napoleon III was firmly in control on the continent and had just enough force to spare to send Admiral Rigaud de Genui on a punitive expedition to Da Nang and Tonkin in 1858. Tropical disease beat off that initial attack, so Genui headed south and captured Saigon. Things didn't go so well there either, but the French were able to send more men and ships year after year, in part because they'd participated in the Second Opium War against China with the British, and those troops and ships were on hand. By 1861, the French had broken out of Saigon and were making serious gains in Cochin, China. Interestingly, also in 1861, an American warship headed to Quinan to pick up the American citizens leaving Cochin, China because of the fighting. The fort at Quinan mistakenly fired on the American ship, and without any way to communicate the mix-up, the Americans blew the fort to smithereens with its superior cannon, the first American act of war taking place just under a hundred years from the day when American weapons would once again fire in Vietnam. Over the next year, the French expanded their territory around Saigon even further, and by the summer of 1862, the Emperor Tu Duc was forced to sign the Treaty of Saigon, which guaranteed the freedom of Catholicism in Vietnam and ceded the three provinces around the southern city to the French. Three more provinces followed de facto by 1867, and when the French captured Hanoi briefly in 1873 as the result of a trade dispute turned invasion, the Emperor Tu Duc was forced to confirm French ownership over the full six in the south. As Francis Fitzgerald writes in Fire in the Lake, quote, It was not until ten years later in 1883 that Paris authorized the conquest of the Red River Delta in the north and the bombardment of Hue in the middle. The justification that French officials chose for this armed intervention was the missionary account, greatly exaggerated, of persecution of the Catholic missionaries by the Vietnamese emperor, unquote, in contravention of the just-mentioned Treaty of Saigon. Whether Tu Duc was really persecuting Catholics is beside the point, because the French would have either found or invented a pretext in any case. The French made their full move on Tonkin in 1883, and like the first days of their early expedition to colonize Cochin, China, things didn't initially go so well for them. But the continual investment of greater numbers of troops and more advanced armament managed to overwhelm first the Vietnamese and then the Chinese, who fought the Sino-French War in the paddy bottoms of the Red River Delta. Long story short enough, the French were in overwhelming territorial control of what we now know as Vietnam by 1886. That's not to say there wasn't ongoing unrest. Some effort, overt or covert, to oppose the French would be going on for the entire life of the colony. For example, a year before the invaders consolidated their rule, in 1885, the young Nguyen Emperor, Ham Ni, fled his palace in Hue 
and took to the hills when the French general de Courcy tried to force him to ratify a treaty that would have established Annam, the area around Hue, the middle of the country, as a French protectorate, similar to the one in Cochin, China. Hamni started the so-called Save the King or Scholars Rebellion, which lived in the mountainous highlands until 1888, when the French captured the erstwhile emperor and shipped him into exile in French Algeria. Despite that rebellion and a couple other incidents besides, the French didn't have too much trouble pacifying the territory that they'd captured. In stark contrast to the two decades first they and later the Americans would spend trying and failing to pacify the same territory. Fitzgerald believes that the relative ease came down to the same Confucian societal ideals that we talked about last time. Long one from Francis Fitzgerald now, quote, Such changes of mind must look opportunistic or worse to Westerners, but to the Vietnamese with their particular commitment to society, it was at once the most moral and most practical course to submit to the French. Indeed, it was the only course available, for in such situations the Vietnamese villager did not consider an alternative. In the old language, a man depended upon the will of heaven. It was therefore his duty to accommodate himself to it as well as possible. In a letter to his subordinates of the southern provinces, Fan Jiang described this ethic of accommodation in the most sophisticated Confucian terms. And now it's Fitzgerald quoting Jiang. It is written that he who lives according to heaven's will is in the right way. He who departs from heaven's will is wrong. To act according to heaven's will is to act according to one's reason. Man is an intelligent animal created by heaven. Each animal lives according to its proper nature, like water which seeks its own level or fire which spreads in dry places. Man to whom heaven has given reason should endeavor to live according to that reason, unquote, and continuing with Fitzgerald now. In conclusion, Jiang requested his officials surrender without resistance to the invading French forces. The French, he wrote, have huge battleships full of soldiers and armed with powerful cannon. It would be as senseless for you to assail them as for the fawn to attack the tiger. You would only draw suffering upon the people whom heaven has entrusted to your care. Again, continuing with Fitzgerald here. Loyal to the Vietnamese emperor, Jiang could not so easily accommodate himself to necessity. Branding himself as a traitor, he chose the same course that, throughout history, his predecessors had taken at the fall of dynasties. Suicide was the only resolution to the unbearable conflict between loyalty to the emperor and obligation to what he saw as the will of heaven, to the will of the community as a whole. But such protests against the will of heaven were only for the mandarins, the moral leaders of the community. They were not for the simple villager, for, as Confucius said, the essence of the gentleman is that of the wind. The essence of small people is that of grass. And when a wind passes over the grass, it cannot choose but to bend. In times of political stability, the villager accommodated himself to the prevailing wind that clearly signaled the will of heaven. Only in times of disorder and uncertainty, when the sky clouded over and the forces of the world struggled to uncertain outcome, only then did the peasant take on responsibility for the great affairs of state. And only then did the leaders watch him carefully. For, so went the Confucian formula, the will of heaven is reflected in the eyes and ears of the people, unquote. On January 10, 1887, the French formed Indochina, made up of their possessions in Annam, Tonkin, and Cochin, China, each of them part of a union but maintained under separate jurisdictions. Those parts were technically governed differently. Cochin, China in the south was a colony under direct control, Annam was a protectorate with the emperors ruling from Hue, and Tonkin was home to the French governor of Indochina but its provinces continued to be administered by mandarins. Cambodia, also part of the arrangement, was likewise a protectorate ruled by native kings, as was Laos when the French added that country to the Union in 1893. Really, though, all five different places were just direct colonies. Jean Lacouture says of the three Vietnamese parts of Indochina in his book Vietnam Between Two Truces that, quote, Vietnam's colonization, a decentralizing force for reasons of local political necessity, 
intensified the strictly provincial differences separating the south, where the Mekong and the Basak are among the richest rice lands in all of Asia, from the center, which is a simple strip of land yielded by the mountain to the sea, and from the north, which is a circle of mountain ranges rising towards Laos, Burma, and China, surrounding the overpopulated delta of the Red River. The south was called Cochin China. This province, wrested two centuries earlier from the declining Khmers by the kings of Hue, was turned by the French conquerors into an opulent French colony, boasting an administration envied by continental Asia, endowed with an ingenious system of representation, agreeable to Europeans, and capable of exporting two million tons of rice annually. And until 1925, it never knew any but the most insignificant political problems. The center, cradle of its dynasties and rebellions, whose string of coastal plains extends from Phan Thiet to Vinh, had kept the old name of Anam. The Treaty of 1884, imposing the status of protectorate upon it, had provided internal sovereignty to an emperor residing at Hue and complete impunity to the mandarins. Finally, in the north, there was Tonkin, also a so-called protectorate despite the installation at Hanoi of central services of the government general of Indochina, which was an excellent marketplace at the gates of China. It was a cruel land whose five million indefatigable peasants never quite succeeded in wresting a subsistence from the narrow delta region. This country in the north was often forced to import rice from Cochin China, and it exported to the plantations in the south workers recruited by the representatives of the great companies. This complementary character of the economies of the north and the south is obviously one of the more powerful arguments in favor of Vietnam's unity. For most of the history of colonization the world over, up to this point, which is the end of the 19th century, the right of European powers to invade and dominate in perpetuity the territories of indigenous peoples had been based on the evangelical mission of the Christian religion. Whatever the actual power politics of the situation, the Spanish and Portuguese conquests of the Americas, the division of Africa, and the piecemeal cutting up of Asia, including the original French attacks on Vietnam, were justified in the name of bringing the light of Christ to the benighted peoples of the earth. The British by this time had been working on an alternate, more enlightenment-friendly idea, one which the French put into words as their mission civilistrice, their civilizing mission. Rudyard Kipling, born and bred in British India, called it the white man's burden in his poem of the same name. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed. Go send your sons to exile to serve your captives' need to wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild, your new-caught sullen peoples, half devil and half child. Take up the white man's burden, in patience to abide, to veil the threat of terror and to check the show of pride, by open speech and simple, and hundred times made plain, to seek another's profit and work another's gain. Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward, the blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard, the cry of hosts ye humor, ah slowly, to the light, why brought ye us from bondage, our loved Egyptian knight? Take up the white man's burden, have done with childish days, the lightly proffered laurel, the easy, ungrudged praise. Comes now to search your manhood through all the thankless years, cold-edged with dear-bought wisdom, the judgment of your peers. What you might not know is that Kipling wrote that poem, which even his contemporaries thought was a little bit over the top, in favor of the U.S. colonization of the Philippines at the end of the Spanish-American War. He says take up the white man's burden not to any given colonizer, but to the American people. Before the poem was even first published, just three days before it was published, Senator Benjamin Tillman read part of it on the floor of the Senate in opposition to that same colonization of the Philippines. He said, quote, 
Why are we bent on forcing upon the Filipinos a civilization not suited to them, and which only means, in their view, a degradation and a loss of self-respect, which is worse than the loss of life itself, unquote. Four days after he quoted the poem on the floor of the Senate, on the 11th of February, 1899, the U.S. Congress ratified the Treaty of Peace between the United States of America and the Kingdom of Spain, otherwise known as the Treaty of Paris of 1898, because it was made up in the previous year, which established American jurisdiction over the islands of the Philippines, which would continue for nearly 50 years after that point. George Kennan, the American diplomat and diplomatic thinker that I've talked about in a few shows, and who will feature heavily in this series, wrote in his book American Diplomacy about this very decision, saying, quote, When one thinks of these things, one is moved to wonder whether our most signal political failures as a nation have not lain in our attempts to establish a political bond of obligation between the main body of our people and other peoples or groups to whom, whether because we wished it so or because there was no other practical solution, we were not in a position to concede the full status of citizenship. If it is true that our society is really capable of knowing only the quantity which we call citizen, that it debauches its own innermost nature when it tries to deal with the quantity called subject, then the potential scope of our system is limited. In this case, the ruling of distant peoples is not our dish. In this case, there are many things we Americans should be aware of, and among them is the acceptance of any sort of paternalistic responsibility to anyone, be it even in the form of military occupation, if we can possibly avoid it for any period longer than is absolutely necessary." Unquote. I think Kennan is right in that democracy is unsuited to colonization, to domination, and that it was as much suited to ourselves in the 1890s as it was to the French in that decade, who had for more than 100 years at that point talked about liberty, equality, and fraternity, and who had penned and revered the rights of man and the citizen. Kennan wrote that passage in 1951, long before America's full involvement in Vietnam, and long before, for that matter, its involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan and long after France had taken the fatal step towards involvement in Indochina. But he was, as he nearly always was, about as right as anyone putting words on a page can be. Once the French had indeed established themselves in China, and leaving aside the civilizing mission for a second, they had to make it into a productive colony in the mercantile sense that the British had pioneered in the Americas. The colony would have to both provide raw materials to the mainland, so-called metropolitan France, and it would have to provide a market for metropolitan manufactured goods that came back on the same routes. Vietnam at this point had a subsistence agricultural economy in the north and center, Tonkin and Annam, and one in the south, Cochin China, which produced an agricultural food surplus. So, writes Francis Fitzgerald in Fire in the Lake, quote, Given the particular geography of the country, the French enterprise consisted of the creation of large plantations, and the development of mines to extract the rich deposits of coal, zinc, and tin, unquote. To facilitate that extraction of resources and the return of French trade goods, the colonizers began to crisscross the country with roads, bridges, and canals, financed by taxes in cash on the local population, who were used to being taxed in kind, that is, in goods, chickens, or rice, or whatever. The colonial authorities likewise created a central government monopoly on salt, alcohol, and opium, working both to hook the population on the last two, and increasing the prices of all three sixfold. The result of these measures, from Fitzgerald, quote, was a sudden growth in the number of landless and impoverished people, people ready to accept employment in the French plantations and mines under the most exploitative of terms, unquote. It was a serious upheaval of what had normally been a society of self-sufficient peasants, but the French didn't see that dynamic, 
taking the large, desperately poor landless class that they'd created to just be the allotment of destitute savages that any colony had to offer its European occupier. Fitzgerald points out one other important impact that the shift from subsistence farming to wage labor on French projects would have. While in the relatively prosperous South, villagers either stayed put or left the village for the city or plantation, and that was that. In the relatively impoverished North, peasants had to split time between the mines and their farms, between their work in Hanoi and their paddies in the village. Quote, The continual coming and going created a link between the modern city and the traditional countryside that did not exist in the South, unquote. That wasn't the only difference that began to grow up between Cochin China in the south and Anam and Tonkin in the center and north. Logoval, whose book is called Embers of War, wrote, quote, Anam and Tonkin, poor in natural resources, attracted relatively little direct French economic penetration and were from the start somewhat peripheral in the colonial system. Cochin China, by contrast, experienced intensive efforts at economic exploitation and cultural transformation. Boasting a tropical climate and fertile soil, Cochin China became the principal base of French capitalism in Vietnam and the destination of choice for the French nationals who emigrated there. Many settled in the rich Mekong Delta, built up from a shallow marine bottom by alluvial deposits of the mighty Mekong River that terminates its meandering course here. Saigon, the colony's capital and commercial center, became variously known as the Pearl of the Far East and the Paris of the Orient. Unquote. If you'll recall from the last show, the Vietnamese had only really recently conquered and begun to settle in the Mekong Delta and the rest of Cochin China. The long traditions of the village and its filial ties to the emperor in Hue had already been the weakest in that part of the country before the French made it their colonial foothold and then the de facto capital of Indochina. Likewise, because the mandarins in the south headed north, which continued under mandarin rule basically until the Second World War, the French had to recruit and train their own new class of administrators in Cochin China, further separating it from the more unified two northern regions. The French also worked to erode the independence of the villages and the authorities of their elders and councils. Gerald Hickey really gets into this in his book, A Village in Vietnam, but suffice to say that the French centralized some of the responsibilities of the villages, like conducting the census and making up the tax rolls, and made dozens of conflicting legal changes to the powers and prerogatives of the different positions of village government. The result of these actions, according to Fitzgerald, was that they broke, quote, the traditional anonymity of the villages and shattered their collective responsibility. Left without any binding obligations to the community, many of the village notables seized the communal land for their own private property and used their judicial powers to terrorize the other villagers, unquote. Likewise, the combined forces of French agro-industrialization and the deterioration of the village system, while they had a much less perceptible effect on life, especially rural life, in Tonkin and Anam, totally changed the way of life in Cochin China. Quote, The majority of the population was landless, dependent for wages or tenants' rights on the French and their Vietnamese protégés. The old elite had vanished, giving place to a small but very wealthy class of Vietnamese landlords and civil servants. Unquote. And all of that points to, if we look into the future, that first the French and then the Americans made Saigon and the South their principal and safest bases as they fought to conquer the country, while Hanoi and the rest of the North became more and more firmly nationalist and independent, the base of operations for the Viet Minh and then the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Logoval also points out that despite French assertions of their fulfilling a civilizing mission, the very objectives of colonization were in the end incompatible with it. The French wanted to develop some industry in the country, but only enough to provide raw materials for metropolitan factories, never enough to actually compete with mainland production. 
Likewise, while the French wanted to educate the Vietnamese enough and give them enough local autonomy to relieve the burdens of administration, too much higher education and democracy would of course inevitably lead to a push for independence, so all of that had to be curtailed too. As Lacouture says, in the outlook that this halfway development produced, quote, all aspects of French rule seemed objectionable. The massive conscriptions of northern coolies to provide labor for the plantations and estates of Cochin China in the south, the spread of the sale of alcohol, the informal toleration of the consumption of opium, the efforts to raise troops for service in metropolitan France, the propensity of military and civil servants to take advantage of the young ladies of Hue or Canto. France's reputation suffered badly in its everyday encounters with the Vietnamese people. She was seen as a nation of tax collectors, customs men, recruiting sergeants, and policemen. And grimly dominating this poor impression was the name of Paolo Condore, that small penal island in the South China Sea where nationalists or those designated as such by some avaricious informer or ruthless official went to suffer and die, unquote, under conditions of brutal privation and torture. Something interesting that Lacouture points out, though, and something that Ho's time in France seems to confirm, is that the Vietnamese didn't hate all French people, but specifically the colones, or colonial French actually in residence in Indochina. They often at points in the colony's history lobbied and looked towards metropolitan government to restrain the forces of and ameliorate the effects of the colons, who seemed to lose humanity in proportion to the time that they had spent in country. Now, despite that the French limited higher education, primary and secondary schooling they did not, and it's in the question of education, and therefore Frenchification, that you can see the roots of Francophilia among the Vietnamese even as you see the source of rebelliousness in the same population. Another long one from Fitzgerald here, quote, As long as Vietnamese society remained a closed system, its intellectual foundations remained flawless and immobile. Quite clearly, however, they could not survive contact with the West, for they were based on the premise that there was nothing new under the sun. But the coming of the French posed a terrible problem for the Vietnamese. Under the dominion of the old empire, the Vietnamese were not members of a religious community, like the Christians of Byzantium or the Muslims of the Abbasid Caliphate, but participants in a whole, indivisible culture. Like the Chinese, they considered those who lived outside of its seamless web to be, by definition, barbarians. When the Vietnamese conquered peoples of other cultures, such as the Chams of Champa, they included these people within the structure of empire only on condition of their total assimilation. The peoples they could not assimilate, they simply surrounded amoeba-like and left them to follow their own laws. The various Montagnard tribes that lived beyond the zone of wet rice cultivation retained their own languages, customs, and governments for thousands of years inside of Vietnam. But with the arrival of the French forces in the 19th century, the Vietnamese confronted a civilization more powerful than their own. For the first time since the Chinese conquest in the 2nd century BC, they faced the possibility of having to assimilate themselves. Confucianism was, after all, not merely a religion or an arbitrary morality, but a science that operated inside of history. As Confucius said, if it is really possible to govern countries by ritual and yielding, there is no more to be said. But if it is not really possible, of what use is ritual? The rituals and the way of life they confirmed did not help the Vietnamese defend themselves against the French, and thus certain mandarins concluded that they had to be abandoned. As the French armies swept across the Mekong Delta, Jiang, the governor of the western provinces, the mandarin we were talking about earlier, reconciled this logic with his loyalty to the nation by committing suicide and ordering his sons not to serve the French, but to bring up their children in the French way, unquote. Vietnamese kids, the kids of those other mandarins, of which Ho Chi Minh was one, did learn French and read through the canon of French literature and thought, which produced what Logoval calls that curious creature found elsewhere in the empire, the Francophile anti-colonialist. 
Logoval has his own examples, but the one that most of you probably know is the French-Algerian nationalist Franz Fanon, who wrote The Wretched of the Earth, which we read just a tiny bit of in the Iran shows. These people arose because of the power and beauty of French political thought that did not seem to countenance colonization. From Voltaire coming down on tyranny, to Rousseau endorsing the principle of popular sovereignty, to even Victor Hugo defending liberty and workers' rights. This is what Ken meant a while back in this show. Some societies might not be well set up to dominate a people that they aren't willing to make into citizens. And the existence of that arrangement corrupts people and politics at home, even as it sows the seeds of its own destruction in the colonies overseas. The natural consequences of all of these factors brought together was that there were frequent periods of rebellious civil strife, and that even in times of relative stability and peace, the country was flush with plots and secret societies. Since at most points they were so far from the expulsion of the French that there was no reason yet to try, they focused their efforts on propaganda, on sabotage, and on preparation for some future date. Something else to be aware of here, another force that rose up somewhat in opposition to, or at least independent of, the French, also as a result of the upheavals in Vietnamese society, were the sects. I'm just going to mention them briefly here, because they won't get to be important at all until the next show, and not really important until the 1950s, not to mention that we're still in the late 1800s, and they crop up in the first decades of the 20th century. But, anyway, the first of the sects was called the Cao Dai, centered at first on southern civil servants who found themselves in touch with a spirit during seances who called itself the Supreme Being, the Cao Dai rapidly became a kind of syncretic polytheism that worshipped Christ and Moses, Buddha and Lao Tzu, the Masonic Eye of God, Joan of Arc, Victor Hugo, and the Taoist gods, among many, many others. As Fitzgerald writes, quote, The small merchant who became the first grand master of the sect built up a religious organization modeled on the Catholic Church and a secular administration with nine ministries that owned land, dispensed welfare, and conducted education and public works, unquote. Within just a year of its founding, in 1925, the Cao Dai had already picked up more than 20,000 adherents in southern Vietnam. The other sect was known as the Hoa Hao, a kind of radical proletarian peasant Buddhism focused on the village, defense of the nation, and the central place of the individual practitioner, versus ordained priests, temples, or pagodas. The Hoa Hao followed a prophet named Huynh Phu So. When the French shut him up in a mental asylum for the nationalist elements of his religion, he converted his own psychiatrist and walked free. In the same way that the creation and adoption of syncretic Catholicism in Latin America after the conquest represented a response to the total death of the old indigenous order, the sects were a reaction to the destabilization that came with the French. From Fitzgerald, quote, The village governments were unable to deal with the distant and incomprehensible forces at work in the society. They had lost much of their hold over the people, as had the whole system of beliefs that supported their authority. Why worship the ancestors or the Mandarin spirits when they demonstrably had no power over the future? The Cao Dai and its cousin sect, the Hoa Hao, offered alternatives. They offered a means of re-establishing the spiritual communion between man, heaven, and earth that the French with their abstract finances and their secular bureaucracy had swept away." Unquote. Like I said, the sects won't be too important for the show for a little while longer, but I bring them up now for a couple of reasons. First is that they highlight how damaging the French conquest was to the kind of Confucian, animist, communal psyche that we talked about in Vietnam last show. And the second is just to put the sects on your radar, since as soon as they came into existence, they began, like the Catholics before them, to carve out territories that they controlled as almost pseudo-governments, and that before long, anyone who wanted either peace or war in southern Vietnam would have to reckon with them. 
I'm delighted to welcome you to a, a seminar to mark the publication of Frederick Logeval's Embers of War. Well, thank you, Jim. I wrote the book really for two reasons. First, in the course of looking especially at the early and mid-1960s and the so-called Americanization of the war in Vietnam, I became more and more interested in what went before. And like I think anybody who studies the war, the American war that is, I had a sense, and I would say to my students in class, you have to understand the French period and you have to understand the importance of World War II to everything that happens later. Short note at the beginning of this section here, I'm coming off yet another cold. Uh, so the quality of the, uh, I don't know, the sound it makes when your nasal passages open up into your throat, I, whatever. The sound quality might not be as high as I'm looking for, but I'm going to try to keep the cold stuff out of this as much as I can because uh, it drives me insane. Anyway, at this point, we're going to be in focusing almost exclusively on Ho Chi Minh. Not necessarily because I want this to be a history of great men. I mostly don't. And not because I don't have a great record of Vietnamese history in Vietnam from the 1910s through the 1940s, although I don't exactly have that either, although the new book by Logoval is helping me out in that respect. I'm focusing on Ho Chi Minh because for a few decades the history of this one man was in a very real sense the history of his country. He managed to become known back home under a slew of different assumed names, and for a while, folks in Vietnam were in love with several different people, having no idea that they were all pseudonyms of the same man. Until the U.S. plucked Ziem out of obscurity in the 1950s, there were virtually no other Vietnamese, outside of Ho's close, intimate followers, who would have any lasting effect on their country's history. And there was no prominent Vietnamese person, including the future emperor, Bao Dai, who was more important to the country's history once Ho had turned 25 or so. I'm going to be working largely from a political biography of Ho Chi Minh by a French journalist that we've already been using quite a lot named Jean Lacatour, who spent time as a reporter in War and Peace in both French Indochina and Algeria. Like Bernard Fall, another Frenchman whose books have also been a great help, Lacatour seems to be able to hold an idea of the romance of colonialism, that is, the attraction it had for so many French people, if not for him along with its total injustice and the nobility of Ho's struggle, even if he had a distaste for communism, much better than any American author, most of whom are fierce partisans one way or the other. Not including Logoval, but that's partly because he wrote his book pretty recently. Lacatur died just two years ago, and I'm going to have a photo of him in the show notes, because he was as dashing at 89 as he was at 20. As Lacatur says, quote, to the north of Old Anam, not far from the lush delta of Tan Hoa, lies a region famous for its dense population, the poverty of its inhabitants, and the intractable nature of its sons. This is the region of Ne Tin, composed of two provinces, Ne An and Ha Tin, and bordered by the Gulf of Tonkin. Above this plain soar gray birds, wild geese with enormous wingspans. Their melancholy cries drift in from the sea, full of nostalgia, vague fear, and the insatiable desire for change. The area is like a mirror, with glimmering beaches and sea-green fields, a long pearl-colored mirror reflecting the first foothills of the Annamese Cordillera. This soggy land is a hinge between laboring Tonkin and aristocratic Anam, between mountain and sea, the north and south, and, in earlier centuries, between the Mandarin scholars and the Mandarins of the court." Unquote. Neitin is, according to La Couture, a particularly hard land, and Vietnam, even in its fertile areas, has never been famous for its ease. Ne Tin is scorched and windy in the dry season, blasted and drenched by typhoons in the wet. 
It was at one point known as the Land of Wooden Fish, since the men of that place, when traveling, would slip a carved fish into their rice and wok mom sauce in order to appear less poor. It was also apparently a source of nearly all of Vietnam's best scholars and writers. The population was so large and the territory so small that studying for the civil service exams was the only sure escape. The Scholars' Revolt that we talked about earlier, started by Ham Nee, it appealed to nationalist mandarins, many of whom came from or lived in Nha Tin. La Couture says that the region was the birthplace of the revolt's mandarin leader, and of nearly every revolutionary to rise to prominence in Vietnam. Nha Tin was the place that Ho Chi Minh was born, son of a mandarin, in 1890. His father had taken part in the Scholars' Revolt and found reasons to keep hating the French his life long. La Couture quotes the future head of the Indochinese Surete, the French colonial security police, Paul Arnaud, as saying, quote, When I first went to Annam in 1907, the older scholars in Hue spoke of a man of great learning who was a Mandarin in Ha Tin province. He was reputed to know as many Chinese characters as any man in Vietnam, where there were many who had this skill. His name was Nguyen Sin Hui. A few months later, this man was dismissed from his office. In some police reports, he was accused of alcoholism, in others of embezzlement. Rather minor failings, they were widespread in this administration, and smilingly overlooked so long as the offenders were politically tame. In fact, Nguyen Sin Hui was really fired for his nationalist sympathies, and because he was one of those Annamese, that is Vietnamese, who refused to learn French in order not to ruin his own language. A weak excuse for a scholar of his caliber. One of his sons was called Nguyen Tat Than. This was the future Nguyen I Quoc, the future Ho Chi Minh. Thus, Ho's life began in an atmosphere of anger, bitterness, of hatred towards France, unquote. Ho's father had risen from nothing to the heights of scholarship, eventually serving the emperor directly as a Mandarin. He then moved to the aforementioned administrative role and was fired. Then he spent the next two decades, until 1930, crossing the country, working as a fortune teller and a scribe. As La Couture says, quote, he wandered for over 20 years, poor and respected, a free man, unquote. Ho got a fair education as a kid, attending one of the few mixed lycees that the French had built in Vietnam. He learned French at the behest of his father, who thought that it would probably come in handy during the next few decades of resistance to occupation, and the family, children and father both, since Ho's mother died very young, befriended Fanboy Chow, leader of the Trip to the East movement, further helping to radicalize Ho's youth. Fanboy Chow left to found his new, ultimately unsuccessful movement in Japan, but he gave Ho some advice before departing, quote, those who wish to liberate the country will have to form a strong party, unquote. Ho left his studies at the French secondary school after four years and headed to Fan Tiet, a little ways outside of Saigon, where he taught Quoc Nu, which is the transliteration of Vietnamese into Romanized characters, and French to employees of a Nuoc Mom factory for a few months. I don't know how many more times it's actually going to come up in the rest of these shows, but Nuak Mam is the national Vietnamese fish sauce that they use to flavor rice, especially when they're poor and they have nothing else to put on it. Anyway, in 1911, Ho left for Saigon, enrolled in a marine navigation course at a vocational school, and within two months left home on a French steamboat. From the end of 1911 to the end of 1913, Ho stayed at sea, visiting the principal ports of Africa, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and a couple in France. His visits to the other colonized countries helped to crystallize his view of colonial imperialism, showing off that it wasn't just the French in Indochina, but Europeans anywhere outside of Europe that behaved so badly. He spent time off the boats working odd jobs in Boston and New York, and he ended up in London in 1915 washing dishes and consorting with other radical colonized expatriates. 
By 1917, though, he'd realized that if he wanted to have an impact in Vietnam, he had to be in Paris, and he moved to that city just before the end of the First World War. From La Couture, quote, The France Ho discovered at the end of 1917 seemed altogether different from the France oppressor of his country that he knew in the East. Here was a nation at war, menaced on all sides and swept by powerful revolutionary currents. Its proud, suffering people seemed in many ways like his own, unquote. France was swarmed in the last months of the First World War with Vietnamese, Senegalese, and Algerian colonial soldiers, all of whom had learned over the course of the conflict to mix pretty freely with the French working class, at least in Paris and its other big cities. Ho found himself associating not just with other Vietnamese or colonial expatriates, but with the French themselves and with revolutionaries of every stripe. From La Couture again, quote, Even before fully realizing his position as a young Annamese patriot, he was struck by the lot of the exploited inhabitant of a colony, and that of the European worker. No one could have felt more naturally drawn to organized labor and to the parties of the left, unquote. Ho had been by birth a patriot, but it was his time during this heady moment in France that he began to develop politically. The socialists and the French left gave him a framework in which to place both the exploited French working class and the exploited colonials, and he spent the next five years studying, writing, and working in the ecology of French socialism. It was at the outset of his time in Paris that Ho changed his name to Nguyen I Quoc, Nguyen the Patriot. He scraped together the money to live by taking and retouching photographs. He wrote for the socialist journal, L'Humanité, and put out pamphlets and a play that satirized the layabout Emperor Bao Dai's visit to Paris. He gathered a coterie of Vietnamese revolutionaries and sympathetic Frenchmen. Karl Marx's grandson invited him to contribute to Les Populaires, and he became the first Vietnamese member of the Young Socialists. We've got to remember, too, that despite the distance, Indochina was well-connected with metropolitan France. And while the movements with which Ho was involved were much stronger in Paris, they were also present in Hanoi, Saigon, and Hue. Even at this early date, through his writings, the name Nguyen I Quoc began to make its way back to an admiring Vietnamese populace. The colonial revolutionaries then in the city found themselves with more and more grounds to demand a change in the situation in their home countries. Whereas at first they had only the philosophical backing of the rights of the oppressed, now they had Wilson's notions of national self-determination, and, what's more, an argument that exploited the supposedly cooperative nature of the colonial relationship itself. Hundreds of thousands of colonials from China, Vietnam, India, and colonies from the north to the south of Africa had been drummed up to fight in Europe, and 200,000 of them had died just for the French, just on the Western Front. As Logoval says, quote, a new generation of Vietnamese expected something in return for this massive sacrifice, and were not impressed by the sentimental imperialism that extolled the participation of people of all colors and religions in saving eternal France, unquote. Ho, at the time Nguyen I Quoc, tried, like the Iranians did last series, to make his and his people's voice heard at the Versailles Peace Conference. He and a pair of compatriots wrote an eight-point plan to change the Vietnamese colonial situation and sent it to the conference secretariat in early 1919. It was an incredibly moderate list of demands, one which asked for Vietnam to become more fully part of France, eliding real independence entirely. It called for freedom of the press, freedom of association, the release of political prisoners, government by law rather than decree, equality of rights between French and Vietnamese, and representation in the French parliament. It was, if you think about it, very much reminiscent of American colonial demands before the revolution broke out here. As Logoval writes again, quote, To better his chances of winning an audience with Wilson, 
Kwok had rented a morning coat for the occasion, but he never got anywhere near the American president, or any of the other principal players. Thin and frail, with gaunt facial features and piercing black eyes, his unimposing figure was lost among the other nationalist representatives from Asia and Africa who had clamored to meet the American president. Wilson probably never even saw the petition. He certainly did not reply to it, unquote. Ho's treatment wasn't any better or worse than that received by the Arabs, the Kurds, the Iranians, the Armenians, or any other exploited nation that found its interests didn't supersede those of the conquering powers, no matter how eloquent Wilson's 14-point plan. Ho's move for self-determination in Vietnam didn't meet with any success, but it did make his name all the more recognized and exciting, again as Nguyen Quoc, in Indochina. And in any case, Ho didn't let the setback disillusion him. As Lacouture writes, Quote, he had already acquired a considerable hold over his compatriots working in France. Any young Vietnamese newly arrived in Paris in the early 1920s was bound to get his bearings from the shabby but fiery figure who wandered from one industrial slum to another, sleeping in garrets. There was a spellbinding quality about his whole manner and appearance. Your studies can wait. Come and work with us, he would say to his young compatriots at the students' quarters in the Rue de Saint-Riard. His tone, though mild, was irresistible, unquote. For the next three years, from 1920 through 1923, Ho spent his political energies in France in three main ways. He went to the Socialist Congress at Tours, which would determine whether French socialists would join the Third Communist International, and he left the meeting to join a fully communist group headed by two Frenchmen named Cachin and Frossard. He published either a long pamphlet or a short book, it's not really clear if there's a difference between those two things, called The Process of French Colonization, which La Couture says was really pretty clumsy and ham-handed, but which came to be widely read in all of the French colonies, and especially his native Vietnam. And Ho set up something called the Intercolonial Union, an anti-colonialist socialist group. I don't know that it had much in the way of organizing activities, but it did publish a newspaper called The Outcast that likewise came to be widely read back in Ho's home country, further advancing the name, at that time, of Nguyen I Quoc. The big question to be decided at the Tour Congress, which was really a meeting of the French section of the Workers' International Party, was whether or not to unite with the Third Communist International. The so-called common turn was what the First and Second Internationals had been, a unified organization of socialist and communist parties across Europe and the wider world working to coordinate their action. The Second International had fallen into disrepute and then been more or less dissolved because while socialists from Marx to Lenin had asserted that the working class had no nation and that it should under any circumstance oppose bourgeois international wars, virtually every communist and socialist party in Europe immediately voted in favor of the conflict at the outbreak of World War I, that is to support their individual countries rather than to resist the war as a united working class. With each half of the Second International at war with the other, the organization, understandably, fell apart. Simplifying now, as pretty much always here on SFT, the Tours Congress split between two factions. One was more moderate or conservative, and wanted to return to the non-Soviet-affiliated Second International, and all of the representatives who at that point held public office in France voted for that option. The majority of the Congress, though, favored joining the Third International, run from Moscow by the Soviets, the only place where the socialist revolution had actually come to fruition, which meant accepting 21 conditions, including a commitment to a dictatorship of the proletariat, a subordination of the party to the leadership of the Third International, the purging of quote-unquote reformists and centrists, among others. 
Poe leaned towards the Third International, for at least one very good reason. The eighth official condition of membership was, quote, A particularly marked and clear attitude on the question of the colonies and oppressed nations is necessary on the part of the communist parties of those countries whose bourgeoisies are in possession of colonies and oppress other nations. Every party that wishes to belong to the communist international has the obligation of exposing the dodges of their own imperialists in the colonies, of supporting every liberation movement in the colonies not only in words but in deeds, of demanding that their imperialist compatriots should be thrown out of the colonies, of cultivating in the hearts of the workers in their own country a truly fraternal relationship to the working population in the colonies and to the oppressed nations, and of carrying out systematic propaganda among their own country's troops against any oppression of colonial peoples." As Ho Chi Minh said, under the name Nguyen I Quoc, at that meeting of the Tour Congress, "...today, instead of contributing, together with you, to world revolution, I come here with deep sadness to speak as a member of the Socialist Party." against the imperialists who have committed abhorrent crimes on my native land. You all have known that French imperialism entered Indochina half a century ago. In its selfish interests, it conquered our country with bayonets. Since then, we have not only been oppressed and exploited shamelessly, but also tortured and poisoned pitilessly. Speaking plainly, we have been poisoned with opium, alcohol, etc. I cannot in some minutes reveal all the atrocities that the predatory capitalists have inflicted on Indochina. Prisons outnumber schools and are always overcrowded with detainees. Any natives having socialist ideas are arrested and sometimes murdered without trial. Such is the so-called justice in Indochina. In that country, the Vietnamese are discriminated against. They do not enjoy safety like Europeans or those having European citizenship. We have neither freedom of press nor freedom of speech. Even freedom of assembly and freedom of association do not exist. We have no right to live in other countries or to go abroad as tourists. We are forced to live in utter ignorance and obscurity because we have no right to study. In Indochina, the colonialists find all ways and means to force us to smoke opium and drink alcohol to poison and beset us. Thousands of Vietnamese have been led to a slow death or massacred to protect other people's interests. Comrades, such is the treatment inflicted upon more than 20 million Vietnamese that is more than half the population of France, and they are said to be under French protection. The Socialist Party must act practically to support the oppressed natives." Ho at this point had also read Lenin's thesis on the national and colonial questions, which roundly condemned colonization and advocated for liberation, and who was ready by the time the Tour Congress rolled around to cast his vote with Lenin and the Soviets. With his help, the French branch of the Workers' International became the French Communist Party, and Ho enrolled in its ninth cell. Something that maybe not everybody necessarily knows, but which we talked about a tiny bit in Iran, is that the communist parties, after the founding of the Third International, operated somewhat like spy organizations, somewhat like secret societies, and somewhat like unions or parties from the very beginning. Baked into the 21 conditions of the Third International was the assumption that the inevitable capitalist civil war between the bourgeoisie and the working class was just on the horizon, which meant that parties had to be able to operate clandestinely, had to be organizing in the military, had to make provision for their own proscription. All of this, along with their basic ideology, made communist parties very suspicious to capitalist authorities the world over, even more so since those parties were aligned, well, some of them, including Ho's party, with the USSR. But all of it was also justified. Communist parties were suppressed, pretty universally unjustly, the world over between the two world wars. And their long-time preparation in the dark is what makes it no surprise, the world over, that when colonial regimes fell apart, as in Iran or Guatemala, 
as in Egypt, and when wartime governments are replaced, as in Greece, Italy, Germany, and France after World War II, communists were nearly always the or one of the strongest, most organized forces on the ground in the aftermath. So that was the first motivation. The second was my sense that we didn't really have a full-fledged uh, narrative history of that early period. A lot of great books existed, and in particular, there's a lot of good French language literature. But nevertheless, I didn't think we had a book that really put the whole thing together, that told us how the whole saga of the struggle for Vietnam began. So this is a book that begins really in 1919, at the end of World War I, when the future of European empire seemed secure, at least to most people, that goes through the interwar period, that then considers the war, the French war, in, in, in full, and finally then the decision by the United States to build up and support South Vietnam. So it's really a story about one Western power's demise in Indochina and the arrival of another, the story of a revolutionary army's stunning victory in the face of immense challenge, but of course it was a victory that would not end the struggle for Vietnam, as we all know. Ho's stay in Paris ended in 1923. From Logoval again, quote, On June 13th, in an elaborately prepared plan to elude police surveillance, Ho made his way to Gare du Nord and boarded a train for Berlin, posing as a Chinese businessman. From there, he continued to Hamburg, then by boat to Petrograd, later Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, finally reaching Moscow at the start of July. Here, too, would be disappointment. Lenin was ill and dying and passed away in January 1924. Ho took the news hard. Lenin was our father, he said. What now are we going to do? That is the question the oppressed masses in the colonies are anxiously asking themselves, unquote. Ho spent his time in Moscow studying with what were then, before Stalin fully consolidated his control, the inheritors of the international socialist movement in pretty real terms. He attended classes at the University of the Peoples of the East. Well, at least that's what Lakotour calls it. Elsewhere it appears as the Communist University of the Toilers of the East. Either way, it had been set up by the Comintern to train communist cadres to organize in the colonial world of the Far East, with special attention to China and India, and, inevitably, the colony named for being between the two, Indochina. Deng Xiaoping, who took over leadership in China after Mao died, was another prominent alumnus. Ho wrote for Pravda and put out a few pamphlets, like China and the Chinese Youth. Lakotur quotes Ruth Fisher, a communist who was around at the time on Ho's time in Moscow. She says that at first he seemed lackluster compared to some of the more flamboyant revolutionaries from the Far East, but that he, quote, struck a delightful note of goodness and simplicity. He seemed to stand for mere common decency, though he was cleverer than he let on, and it was his well-earned good name which saved him from getting caught up in internal conflicts. Also, he was temperamentally far more inclined towards action than towards doctrinal debates. He was always an empiricist within the movement, but none of this detracted from his colleagues' regard for him, and his prestige was considerable." Unquote. Ho's other big move during his first stint in Russia was a pair of speeches that he made at the 5th Congress of the Communist International. Given that Lenin had just died, and Stalin wouldn't fully consolidate his control over either the Comintern or the Soviet Union for a few years yet, the 5th Congress was an actual Congress an open, raucous debate about the direction of the Communist Party between delegates from all over the world. Now, that doesn't square with our vision of communism, coming as it does from the brutal dictatorships that grew up in Russia and China, 
but Marx's original conception and its original implementations in Europe and Russia through the late 1800s and into the early 1900s was radically democratic rather than authoritarian or totalitarian. It's not too far out there to say that the Bolsheviks ended up in control of the Russian Revolution because they attended the most meetings, they joined the most workers' committees, and once the Soviets, or People's Councils, had been formed, Bolshevik members of those Soviets managed to convince the most people during their votes. We think of the Russian Revolution as a matter of fire and blood, and it was, but the Bolsheviks talked their way to the top of it. At this point, in 1924, that same spirit of discourse still moved the international movement, and speaking at the Fifth Congress of the Communist International meant playing a real part in the future of that movement. Or it sort of did, given that Stalin really took control of it later, but at this point, that's what it would have felt like, and that's what it would have ostensibly been. Ho spent the first of those speeches lambasting the Communist International itself for its failure to act on the colonial question. That's not quite as radical a move as it sounds like, since self-criticism has always been a part of organized communism, and will actually play a serious role in the success of the Viet Minh and the Viet Cong later on. But even so, Ho pulled no punches. He said, quote, We shall establish facts that are beyond imagining, and that tempt one to believe that our party is systematically ignoring all matters relating to the colonies, unquote. Ho used the second of these speeches to outline some of what the Comintern might do to rectify its past inaction. I'm not actually going to quote any of that speech because we're already running incredibly long and we're not close to the end even of this episode, but the important thing to draw out is that Ho beat Mao to the punch by years and years, calling even at this early date for a focus on the East Asian peasantry as was, rather than on an attempt to create a proletariat, an industrial working class, before considering the overthrow of the capitalist bourgeoisie. Ho was laying the foundation, any and everywhere that he could, for the revolution that he already knew he would be bringing to his country. After not too long in Moscow, in the fall of 1924, the Comintern sent Ho to Canton in southern China, apparently to work as a translator for Mikhail Borodin, who was the Communist International's liaison with Sun Yat-sen's Chinese nationalist movement. Alright, very briefly now. China had existed under imperial rule, either native or Manchu-Mongolian, for thousands of years by 1900. But a series of weak emperors, the Boxer Rebellion, British Opium and the Opium Wars, among a million other factors, had weakened the ruling Qing dynasty and its control to nearly nothing by 1910. A rebellion, angling for a democratic republic and led by one Sun Yat-sen, rose up to oppose the emperors and declared the foundation of that republic in 1912. Sun Yat-sen and his nationalist Kuomintang party controlled a strong base in the south of China, but didn't have the strength to move north and unseat the emperors. Sen made a deal with a guy whose name you do not need to know, who ran one of the Qing imperial armies. He would destroy what was left of the sclerotic imperial state, and in turn would become president of the new republic, rather than Sun Yat-sen. The guy came through on the deal, but then dissolved the Kuomintang and declared himself emperor. That didn't go well with anyone in China, and he abdicated and died pretty soon afterwards. The imperial state had been overthrown, and Sun Yat-sen re-established himself in the Kuomintang in the south of China, but the rest of the country fell under the control of dozens of different regional warlords. Again, I'm simplifying because you don't need to know all of this, but the feature of the next few decades in China was the story of that Kuomintang Republic expanding its authority to more and more of what we now think of the territory of that country. This is where Mikhail Borodin and Ho Chi Minh came into the situation. 
different Western governments, as they had been for the last two centuries, were throwing their weight behind one or another Chinese faction, or, more likely, behind quite a few different Chinese factions, in the hope of influencing the shape and loyalties of the China that emerged from this period of chaos. Borodin, on behalf of the Comintern, was helping the Kuomintang to organize, running a kind of military academy, and reshaping both the party and its government along Leninist lines of democratic centralism. The big contribution from Borodin and the Comintern was the establishment of schools to train cadres for mass organizations, especially of the peasantry, the way that the Bolsheviks had organized the peasantry in Russia in opposition to the imperial court, and then in the interest of industrialization. Two men whose names you know both participated in the communist programs. Chiang Kai-shek was active on the military side of things, while Mao Zedong first studied and then taught in the mass organizing schools. It's not exactly clear to me, or so far to anyone I've read, whether the Comintern never really intended for Ho to help Borodin out once he made it to Canton, or whether Ho made the decision on his own, but for Ho Chi Minh, at the very least, it seems as though his real purpose in southern China was Vietnamese and not Chinese. The nationalist Vietnamese emigre movement existed chiefly in two places, Paris, where Ho had already been, and in Canton, across the border from Vietnam, where Ho was now. The exile community there was particularly fired up at the time because a Vietnamese revolutionary had just recently tried to bomb the governor general of Indochina's motorcade, if unsuccessfully. At that time, according to a biography of Ho published in Hanoi in 1966, he decided that assassinating governor's general was not the way to achieve the overthrow of the colonial regime. To secure victory for the revolution, a powerful political party was needed, a lesson that he learned from fanboy Chao in Vietnam, from the Bolsheviks in Moscow, and from the Kuomintang nationalists in China. To that end, in 1925, Ho and a small group of fellow Vietnamese founded the Revolutionary Youth League, his first Indochinese creation. It was the group that, though it may have been hard to see there in the small, smoky tea houses of Canton, would become the seed of the Indochinese Communist Party, and in turn, the Viet Minh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, and finally, Vietnamese independence. All that was a long way off for the moment, though, and the League focused its immediate activities on building up committees across the other three Vietnamese regions, that is, Tonkin, Annam, and Cochin China, and working to convert members of other revolutionary groups to their cause. Vietnam is all of these things. Vietnam is also the scene of a powerful aggression that is spurred by an appetite for conquest. It is the arena where communist expansionism is most aggressively at work in the world today where it is crossing international frontiers in violation of international agreements, where it is killing and kidnapping, where it is ruthlessly attempting to bend free people to its will. And into this mixture of subversion and war, of terror and hope, America has entered Ho and his Revolutionary Youth League continued those organizing activities for two years, with Ho sending cadres into Vietnam as well as back to the USSR and to the Nationalist Chinese Soviet Military Academy in Canton. 
This period only lasted two years because the tenuous nationalist-communist alliance at work in China didn't hold together for too long after Sun Yat-sen died in the summer of 1925. In his absence, Chiang Kai-shek on the right and Chow Enlai on the left continued to work together, and even to prepare their move north to consolidate their control over all of coastal China. Once that attack began in 1927, though, and armies with different political leanings started racing to claim more territory than their rivals, relations broke down, and Chiang began to purge all communist elements from his government and from the Kuomintang, forcing leftists into hiding and beginning the civil war that would rage in China for the next 21 years. Chiang Kai-shek murdered a great many of the communists who had been resident in Canton, but Ho and his followers had read the writing on the wall and escaped to British Hong Kong into northern Vietnam, or to elsewhere. Ho himself left for Moscow and conducted a brief European tour before the Comintern sent him to Thailand to, according to Lako Tour, set up communist cells among the large Vietnamese expatriate community there, to stir up trouble for the French Indochinese administration just over the border, and to overhaul and expand the Communist International's network in Southeast Asia. Lako Tour describes much of this interim period between Paris and the final return to Vietnam as a picaresque, a word that means a book of loosely connected anecdotes and adventures, like Candide or Huckleberry Finn or Kim. It's an easy association. A lot of the history here is lost, or at least inaccessible, so we get these brief glimpses of Ho's activities. Ho's calling himself Vuong, disguised as a vagabond in northern Thailand, roaming the hill country. Ho disguised as a Buddhist monk in Bangkok, setting up communes and workers' collectives in the pagodas and temples, Accounts of Ho's capture, making their way back time and again to his compatriots in Canton and Moscow, and always, in the end, proving to be false. Ho was the revolutionary's revolutionary, but, unfortunately, his sabbatical in Europe and his long, though hard-working sojourn in Thailand began to take their toll on the movements that he'd left behind in Vietnam. While Ho was away in Siam, the cadres he'd left in Hong Kong and dispersed throughout Vietnam continued their own activities. Pressure was building to partake in something more than just organization, with both the French Sûreté and the Kuomintang in China hounding the members of the Revolutionary Youth League, and pretty much all leftists across the board. At a 1929 meeting of that league in Hong Kong, the delegation from Tonkin demanded that they make their communist leanings explicit and form an Indochinese Communist Party. The leadership of the League refused because they thought it was too early to come out openly, so the Tonkin delegation left and formed an openly communist cell in Hanoi on their own initiative. The folks left in Hong Kong, impressed by their erstwhile comrades, set off a letter to Moscow, petitioning the Comintern for permission to form a new Indo-Chinese Communist Party. Not to be outdone, first the League members in Cochin China, and then members of another leftist Vietnamese group in Tonkin, also formed unaffiliated Indo-Chinese Communist Parties. Lacouture chalks this fracturing up to Ho's absence, and that must have been the general feeling at the time too, because the Comintern leadership in Moscow, when it got fed up with this bewildering proliferation of communist groups in Vietnam, sent a messenger to Ho in Thailand, telling him to head back home and to straighten things out. Ho left Siam and got the principals of the different groups together in the stands of a soccer match in Hong Kong in early 1930. He told them to make up, to play nice, and to join a unified Indochinese Communist Party, which they then did. Even then, though, Ho and his folks were not exactly the dominant force on the Indochinese scene. As Logoval writes, quote, Initially, the Indochinese Communist Party was but one of a plethora of entities within the Vietnamese nationalist movement. The more Francophile reformist groups advocated nonviolent reformism and were centered in Cochin China in the south. 
Of greater lasting significance, however, were more revolutionary approaches, especially in Anam and Tonkin in the center and north. In the cities of Hanoi and Hue, and in provincial and district capitals scattered throughout Vietnam, anti-colonial elements began to form clandestine political organizations dedicated to the eviction of the French and the restoration of national independence, unquote. Of those, the ICP was just one at this point, the ICP being the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, if a prominent one for its association in newspaper articles with the beloved and mysterious Nguyen the Patriot, and also Vuong the Vietnamese nationalist known from his time in Thailand. One of the, if not the, other major players on the scene was the VNQDD, the Vietnam Quoc Dan Dang, the Vietnamese Nationalist Party, and the Vietnamese counterpart of the Kuomintang, modeled both on the structure and the anti-communism of its Chinese counterpart. The VNQDD might have posed more of a threat to Ho and his group's centrality in the independence struggle at that point, and later on, if they hadn't jumped the gun. From Logoval again, in early 1930, the VNQDD, quote, tried to foment a general uprising by Vietnamese serving in the French army. On February 9th, Vietnamese infantrymen massacred their French officers in Yen Bai. The French swiftly crushed the revolt, and the VNQDD's leaders were executed, were jailed, or were fled to China. The party ceased to be a threat to colonial control, unquote, although it didn't fade from the scene just yet. After Ho united the Indochinese Communist Party in theory, and it had started holding elections to make that unification a fact, Ho also released a manifesto for the party, detailing its objectives for Vietnam. Quote, 1. To overthrow French imperialism, feudalism, and the reactionary Vietnamese capitalist class. 2. To make Indochina completely independent. 3. To establish a government composed of workers, peasants, and soldiers. 4. To confiscate the banks and other enterprises belonging to the imperialists and put them under the control of the government. 5. To confiscate the whole of the plantations and property belonging to the imperialists and the Vietnamese reactionary capitalist class and distribute them to peasants. 6 to implement the eight-hour working day. Seven, to abolish public loans and poll tax, to waive unjust taxes hitting the poor people. Eight, to bring back all freedoms to the masses. Nine, to carry out universal education. Ten, to implement equality between man and woman, unquote. As unlikely as it seems, I'm going to speed up a little bit here because the rest of the 1930s weren't quite as eventful in Vietnam as the 1920s, and I need to get us moving in any case. If it hasn't been obvious already, Vietnam's situation and the chances for the ICPs and that manifesto's success were very much bound up in the geopolitics of the time, from internal Russian communist maneuvering to the delicate and turbulent situation in China to, shortly, Japanese designs on East Asian expansion. 1930, besides being the year of the ICP's unification, was also the year when the global situation began to bear more and more heavily on events in Vietnam. The Great Depression, sparked by speculation and instability in unregulated stock markets in the United States, spread across the globe after September 4, 1929. In Indochina, the price of rice plummeted, bankrupting small farmers across the country and sparking widespread unrest. As Francis Fitzgerald writes, quote, The party undertook its first large-scale action with the organization of workers and peasants in the Nei Tin region, remember the place of Ho's birth. The results were spectacular. For a year, the people of the region demonstrated against the colonial regime, assassinated local officials, created a government of village Soviets, and carried out a land reform. The revolt did not spread to other areas of the country, and from a historical perspective, it might be said to have been premature, for the French still possessed the force to put it down in a most brutal manner. But the Communist Party survived, gained experience, 
and waited for a new opportunity to emerge, unquote. Ho Chi Minh, for his part, while this was still going on, would have liked to have been in Vietnam, but he was still haunting Hong Kong and southern China, awaiting a change to return. Louis Arnault, who we quoted earlier, who had been in charge of tracking suspicious Vietnamese nationalists in Paris in the teens and 20s, was now head of the Charité, the French secret colonial police, and he was watching Ho under his various pseudonyms with great attention. Lacouture quotes Arnault as saying, quote, Ho knew me well enough to realize that as long as I was alive and had a free hand, there was no chance of his returning to Indochina, unquote. This attitude, this thing that comes through in these quotes from Arnaud, is what makes French colonialism dangerously fascinating. Maybe not generally or objectively, but to me as an American. Arnaud and another Frenchman we'll get to in another episode both ended up by circumstance, having to oppose Ho through both of their lifetimes. But both admired him, and to some extent liked him. This other second guy actually became a personal friend. It seems like a more romantic position, and maybe a more classically honorable one than that which we Americans hold, in which we develop instant and inveterate hatreds for our geopolitical adversaries. But, and this is something I'll likewise talk a lot about in the future episodes about the French War, I can't let the unfortunate fact that even from where I sit in 2018, I can still smell the romanticism in a far-flung French colony run by honorable men cloud or crowd out the fact that those honorable men were working in pursuit of a totally dishonorable colonial policy. In any case, Ho couldn't yet make his way into Vietnam, and on the 6th of June 1931, the British authorities arrested him in Hong Kong. Not to save the French the trouble, but because they were worried about the stability of their own East Asian possessions, Hong Kong not the least of them. If we read, with Lacouture's help, from the archives of the Hanoi Charité, the story ends right here. Quote, The last entry made in the file marked Nguyen I Kwok reads, Died in Hong Kong prison, 1933. And indeed, the news was authenticated by the socialist journal Le Humanité and the Soviet press. In Moscow, the Vietnamese students at the Stalin Institute organized a memorial ceremony, and a representative of the Comintern delivered a funeral oration, unquote. Not everyone believed that even at the time, though, and more than a few interested observers apparently thought that Ho had made his way secretly back to Bangkok with the help of British intelligence, meaning that he'd made a deal with them. Lacouture asked the Charité head Arno about that theory, although he doesn't make it clear exactly when he asked Arno, and the police chief responded, quote, a man like Ho Chi Minh work as a British agent? And in the 30s too? Why, I didn't dare ask him to work for me, not even in Paris at the start of his career, unquote. What it looks like, in the end, is that Ho did make his way out with British help, but not that of the authorities. He'd been provided a lawyer by International Red Aid, a group set up to provide for the defense of the communist agents constantly being detained by capitalist authorities. That British lawyer managed to sneak Ho onto a boat and slip him out of the port of Hong Kong. Things were getting ever hotter in China, with Chang's Kuomintang desperate to root out the growing communist insurgency within his own territory. So Ho headed back to Moscow by way of a secret sea journey and the railhead at Vladivostok. We'd better try to understand the mood in Washington, not get wrapped up in romantic delusions that come from talking to one another too much, and try to capture the mood to react properly to the mood in the country as well. Unfortunately, we have a president who probably represents pretty accurately the mainstream of American opinion, although people in the peace movement don't like to believe this. I don't like to believe it either, but I'm afraid that Lyndon Johnson probably does reflect prevailing American attitudes when he says, as he did, 
that without superior air power, America is a bound and throttled giant, impotent and easy prey to any yellow dwarf with a pocket knife. What is important about such statements is not so much the undercurrent of racism, though that's bad enough, but rather the idea that we are prey to these yellow dwarves with their pocket knives. Obviously, we are easy prey to them only in their countries, where we have a perfect right to be. Ho got up to all sorts of stuff in Moscow, none of which bears mentioning here, except that he participated in yet another Congress of the Communist International, this time the 7th, which came out strongly in favor of the creation of popular fronts. Ho remained in Russia this time for four years, not just letting the heat in East Asia calm down, but also recovering from his periodic fights with malaria and tuberculosis, two diseases that had landed him in the hospital during his prison stay in Hong Kong. In those years, though, from 1934 to 1938, the world situation was rapidly becoming more and more relevant to Ho's struggle in Vietnam. The Japanese had launched their invasion of Chinese Manchuria in 1931, and by later in the decade were well on their way to creating their dreamed-of Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere, their own colonial project, brought on and sustained by a pseudo-fascist military authoritarian government in power on the island. While Western governments were primarily concerned with the similar fascist expansions in Italy and Spain and then in Germany, Austria, and Czechoslovakia under Hitler, neither they nor the nationalist Chinese were blind to what was becoming the overarching threat to stability in East Asia and the Pacific that is, the Japanese. The major effect of that shift in attitudes for Ho and his compatriots was that Chiang Kai-shek suddenly found himself willing to re-ally with Mao, Chao Enlai, and the rest of the Chinese communists, as well as to open up South China to Vietnamese communist revolutionaries again. The French, in part because of their concern over Japanese designs on their Indochinese colony, since the Japanese expansionist rhetoric was explicitly anti-European colonial, even as it was colonial of a different flavor, and in part because of a liberalization of the composition of their government at home, the French also eased back on their position in Vietnam. From Logoval, quote, Between 1936 and 1939, pressure from French authorities diminished as a popular front government in Paris allowed communist parties in the colonies an increased measure of freedom the result of increased cooperation between the Soviet Union and the Western democracies against the common threat of global fascism." Unquote. In North China, Japanese troops take formal possession of Pekin with a column of 3,000 men. And in white flag trains, the Chinese 29th Division retreats south. The Japanese commanders take up their positions outside Pekin, preparing to move against the Chinese threat to cut the lines of communication between that city and Tientsin. In the hurry of their departure, the Chinese 29th Division leaves behind most of its equipment, which is seized by Japan. Towards the end of this short period of rapprochement between the French colonial authorities and socialist and communist elements on the ground, one which saw French and Vietnamese leftists marching together in the streets of Hanoi, Hue, and Saigon, Ho issued a statement detailing the policy of a national popular front. Quote, 1. For the time being, the party cannot put forth too high a demand, national independence, parliament, etc. To do so is to enter the Japanese fascist scheme. It should only claim democratic rights, freedom of organization, freedom of assembly, freedom of press, and freedom of speech, general amnesty for all political detainees, and struggle for the legalization of the party. Which, if you'll remember, that all sounds quite a bit like the program they presented in 1919 at the Versailles Peace Conference. 
Two, to reach this goal, the party must strive to organize a broad democratic national front. This front does not embrace only Indochinese people, but also progressive French residing in Indochina, not only toiling people, but also the national bourgeoisie. Three, the party must assume a wise, flexible attitude with the bourgeoisie, strive to draw it into the front, win over the elements that can be won over and neutralize those which can be neutralized. We must by all means avoid leaving them outside the front, lest they should fall into the hands of the enemy of the revolution and increase the strength of the reactionaries. Four, there cannot be any alliance with or any concession to the Trotskyite group. I don't really know what to comment on here I, because I'm not familiar with the intricacies of intra-Soviet politics, but I think in hindsight it's pretty easy to say that any strictly Stalinist line probably isn't a great line. Anyway, five, to increase and consolidate its forces, to widen its influence, and to work effectively, the Indochinese Democratic Front must keep close contact with the French Popular Front because the latter also struggles for freedom, democracy, and can give us great help. Six, the party cannot demand that the front recognize its leadership. It must instead show itself as the organ which makes the greatest sacrifices, the most active and loyal organ. It is only through daily struggle and work that the masses of the people acknowledge the correct policies and leading capacity of the party, and that it can win the leading position." Unquote. This, to bury the lead, is what a popular front strategy was about. In one sense, to actually ally with a broad coalition of other parties and ideologies in the pursuit of shared goals. In this case, independence for Vietnam, even if it had to be through intermediate steps, like greater autonomy, or partnering temporarily with the French to fend off the greater threat of the Japanese. In another sense, it was a way to subtly, secretly, and maybe even in some way dishonestly make the communist cause, Ho's cause, into a fight of the whole people to co-opt the population's enthusiasm by way of a front organization that was largely controlled by the ICP. These two different objectives, or these two different conceptions, though, existed in tandem and in tension. Like Ho said, not only would the party not take direct control of the popular front, it could not even take as much control as would create the impression that it was running the popular front, and that it had to win leadership of the front through great sacrifice. That is, it just had to be the best voice among many voices. The same way that the Bolsheviks, for some amount of time during the Russian Revolution, were the best voice among many voices. The way that you feel about the Popular Front will pretty much determine the way that you feel about Ho's and the Vietnamese struggle. Because through the Democratic National Front, through the Viet Minh, and through the National Liberation Front, what the Americans would come to call the Viet Cong, the Vietnamese communists and their allies across the political spectrum would be fighting through these years in the 1930s, and for nearly the next 40 years to come. That is the end of our second episode on Vietnam. I knew as soon as I gave you folks the rough outline those weeks ago that I'd be running outside of it before too long. I'll still be following the broad strokes, but if it's already taken two episodes to get two-thirds of the way through what I thought would be just the first show, I think it's fair to imagine that this series is going to end up much longer than I'd originally planned, which is pretty much par for the course here at SFD. The one advantage, though, of spending an entire episode going from 1939 to 1945, finally making it to that stage in Hanoi that was the cold open of the first show, is that we get to dig deep on Roosevelt and Truman, 
the seemingly inconsequential and eventually fatal decisions we made about the French and Vietnam when we were pursuing other, apparently larger, and more important interests in the course of the Second World War. Like I mentioned in the intro to The Last Rob Show, my newspaper, 50 States of Blue, folded, so I've got more time now, and thanks to that visit from my folks that delayed a show two weeks ago, I've got almost all the paper books I could want to get me through the rest of this series. As far as housekeeping goes, know that while I have discontinued that exclusive Patreon reward content, the cash you folks have thrown my way there still helps me mightily in funding SFD's more quotidian necessities down here in Mexico. Thanks there to Jack Flynn, Ben Bolton, and R. James Gavreau. Rate the show, share the show, come find me on social media, talk to me about Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh, but more than that, share the show and rate the show, man! That's it for now. Next time, war breaks out, the Japanese take Indochina, FDR champions national sovereignty for the colonized, and Truman takes a few fateful steps. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.